seven of the book uh, ratchets up to about 11 if you've got one of those amplifiers it goes up to 11 like in this is final tap um, and at this point in the story um, all we know or all um, the king knows is Esther has a big ask he's going to ask to the king at this big banquet and the banquet is uh, with Haman and the king and uh, Queen Esther is there and it's again apparently a pretty lengthy one because by the time you get to the second day of the feast as they were drinking wine the king now turns to Esther and is like okay finally tell me what is it that you really wanted what is it and again he, he recites the, the sort of standard formula that he approached her with uh, in the previous chapter what is your petition what do you request even up to half my kingdom in other words you know I love you to the moon and back Esther what do you want from me and here's the moment. We, we who've been watching and reading the story are kind of wondering, how is Esther going to try and save her people? Because we saw her had a chance before, and she didn't. She delayed things for another feast. So here's the moment. So what happens now as so we turn into this is about uh, chapter 7, verses 3, 4, and following. So I love this moment for Esther. And here, here she is called Queen Esther. Like, yeah. We are all supposed to be very clear that she is Queen she is on top of the world, and she seems to be playing her cards very carefully. Like, she is addressing Xerxes with lots of respect, you know, making sure to stoke that ego. And she, she's doing this because she needs to explicitly blame Haman without implicitly blaming Xerxes. Yeah. Right? Because, <laughs> like, if, you, if she does this poorly... She's kind of blaming Xerxes, because Xerxes, as king, is supposed to be the buck stops here. Mm -hmm. um, but as we all know, Xerxes loves to just hand over his authority, because he doesn't want to deal with it. Yeah. So she has to be very, very careful, as she fully exposes herself as a Jew. Mm -hmm. So she is walking this thin line, but she's doing it, I think, really, really well. Okay, so the the, the, the words of actual response may be worth us reading out loud just as a folks have. We, we aren't usually like, a, hey, read it all verse by verse, but her, her, her wording is, is fantastic. So in verse 3 of chapter 7, then Queen answered, if I won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me, that is my petition, and the lives of my people, that is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold nearly as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace. But no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Isn't it clever how she's even framed this as, you know, the real atrocity here is, oh king, you're going to be out of a lot of subjects if we all get killed. Mm -hmm. Now, this sparks from the king. Well, what's going on? What's happening here? What are you, what are you revealing? So, so quick a uh, translating note 
note. Um, I, I've read a commentary that suggests that she is making this, like, suggestion of, like, oh, yes, if we had been merely sold as slaves, mm -hmm. it would be a different story. And that's because, I guess, the Hebrew vows for, um, to destroy and to, to enslave are very, very similar. It is the vowel that is slightly different. Mm -hmm. So, like, in my own accent, the word P-E-N and the word P-I-N pen and pin, mm -hmm. I have to be super conscious when I say those two words because otherwise they sound identical. Yeah. And so similarly, these two words sound so similar that she's kind of making this point of like, you know, if it had just been this thing, it would be one thing. But since it's this other thing, yeah. Yeah. which is so much worse... It's, 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 there's wordplay going on in the Hebrew of this, right. which again we noted along the way in this whole book that the the storytelling has a certain level of artistry that like there, there are moments where there are things that are strangely funny or again wordplay going on that make it I guess exaggerate that sometimes there's just the sheer ridiculousness or the sheer like oh my goodness yeah this it, it's not like she's actually signing up for for slavery. But to say, if that, that was one thing, but this is so much worse. Yeah. Which, again, again, is a good storytelling technique. Because, like, this story is being told in Hebrew. So, like, this point kind of makes sense in Hebrew. Yeah. And then that kind of falls apart when you think about the fact that Esther would not have been actually speaking Hebrew to her husband, the Persian king. <laughs> right. So, right, like, right. that's when it kind of falls apart. But, like, because this is a story, this is... Right. This is good. This is good storytelling. Right, right, right. Um, and I think that's helpful, too. That Like, there, there are points we've said along the way that clearly whatever, whatever the original episode is that in history that, that is the root for this, there's... There's a particular way this has been framed as a story that, um, in a way similar, if you've got a historical episode and you write a, a, a book about it, some of the author's sort of flair for writing or their, their style is going to come through. And that doesn't mean that the story is, is made up. It means that an author has shaped the way the story gets told. And yeah, some of it may go down to this is part of how we'll remember the story better. This is part of the dramatic effect. That, that's a part of how the story gets told. Um, it, it seems to be interesting, although there, there's not more said, but when she gives a sort of glancing reference that even if we'd been enslaved, that would have been one thing, but it's, we're going to be wiped out. Like, in, at least in the ears of any faithful Jewish person is the memory of they have lived through slavery for 400 years, and there was this, if, if we have to go through that, God brought us through that before. Wiping us all out, we, we, that, that's just not okay. But God, God brought us through slavery. We can face that. We're strong enough for that. But there's almost this sort of like winking remembrance of the, the history of we, we, God's brought us through that kind of thing before. Um, but this is a, a whole new moment where it is, it is literally about our existence. It's about genocide now. Okay, so when, when this uh, big, big reveal or speech uh, is delivered, um, finally it gets revealed who the enemy is, right? So the, the king says, hey, well, who, who's plotted all this against you? And finally Esther answers and, and the, the, the mask comes off the villain. Yeah, I think she does that, again, really poetically, because, you know, he's saying, who, who is this? Where is he? And she, she goes, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Like, he's literally sitting right there. It's, like, I think that's just a great, like, I just imagine her, like, standing up super dramatically, like a telenova, and, like, pointing. Yeah, this, this definitely feels very soap opera-y. And to make it even more soap opera-y, 
When the king hears this, he runs out dramatically out to the palace garden. Like you can picture there's a balcony or a veranda or something like that. This is when the, the, you know, the, the, the strings play and the high-tension music in the background. He's out there, and Haman comes to the couch that Esther's reclining on, pleading for his life, and the king walks back in and sees Haman lunging at Esther on the couch, and he's like, oh my goodness, you're going to assault my wife even in my presence? So this breaks a court edict. There yep. is historical records that there were edicts that were about courtiers and eunuchs and basically any male types who were not the king and how they should act in the harem and with the king's women. And that you should not be closer than seven steps. So, like, even back then, they had physical distancing. <laughs> <laughs> Do not get any closer. And so he's, like, practically on top of Esther begging for his life. And, of course, that's when he, he walks in. Right. So, again, like, the, the drama and the, the sheer dramatic irony of this is the moment the king, you know, has collected his, his uh, uh, senses and he walks back in to, you know, catch his breath. And now he sees Haman and this is the moment. And so he reads the situation as he's trying to attack my wife now. Um, and that's an easy way out for Xerxes, right? So that instead of now killing Haman for doing this thing that he is technically the king's seal is on, right. he can now kill Haman for, with this false accusation of um, molesting his wife. Right, so like, there's a certain, like, well, this is neat and tidy for getting rid of Haman. It doesn't quite yet solve the question of, wait a second, there's an edict hanging out there to kill all the Jews and steal their property. Um, but yeah, this is a tidy way of, look, there's clear evidence he was attacking, and the king is off the hook for blame for, for if uh, Haman's uh, executed for uh, apparently attacking the queen. And again, with sort of that irony that's been hanging over the whole story, the gallows that uh, Haman had built intending to kill Mordecai on is the one that he is going to be strung up on himself. That, as we noted last time, there's a certain ridiculousness to it. It's a, it's a gallows 50 feet high, as if you can get any debtor by making it a super tall gallows. But So at the moment that, um, that uh, the, the king says, uh, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And, you know, they put the black bag over his head to go take him to hang him. Um, and indeed, he's going to get hanged on that very same gallows he prepared for Mordecai. And the anger of the king abated. Before we go into the, the plot of what happens in chapters 8 and 9 and following, I, I, I guess I want to pause for a moment and note how, at least up to this point, there seems to be an echo in the plot of Esther um, that, that resounds or, or resonates with... Um, a theme I've noticed a lot in the Psalms, in the in Psalms, especially where someone is fearing the their enemies, whatever those enemies are, whether it's David running from Saul or you know, just an anonymous, please help me from my enemies, is that there's this often there's often this sense in the Psalms of eventually the traps that the wicked have set for me, God will use, and they'll get the wicked will get trapped in their own trap. They're sort of like in the end, justice comes around. I don't have to you know take up my own arms and I'll kill my enemies, but God's got things covered. In the end, there's this. I guess poetic justice, you could say, um, that the, the poets in the Psalms often express hope in, that the, the, the very devices the enemies are trying to use against me, will, they'll fall into their own traps, that eventually evil becomes its own destruction because it falls into its own trap, that kind of thing. Um, and that seems to be a common thread both in Israel's worship life in the Psalms as well as in its storytelling in a book like that. So, all right, where do we go from here uh, in, into to chapter 8? What, what happens next? 
So I think this might be another good place to pause because the tone of the book shifts for the, for the rest of them. Like, no longer is there great exaggeration, no longer is there hilarity, no longer does it read like a Telenova script. Mm -hmm. It is matter-of-fact attitude. Esther is going to be referred to as Queen Esther for the remainder of the book. Like, it is, um, you know, we're kind of wrapping things up and we're no longer really making fun of the Persians because now we're focusing on the Jews mm -hmm. and what is going to happen to them because the edict is still out there. Right, this is the thing. that, Like, it's that part of the story where, okay, maybe the, the, the main villain uh, has been t has stopped, it seems, but his plan is still out there and unless we save the day, all these people are going to be wiped out and the clock is ticking because they had set the clock for the, what, 13th day of Adar, the 12th month of the year. So the, the clock is ticking and we're running out of time to get news to everywhere across the Persian Empire if this is going to be undone, right? So this is uh, Esther's next move is... Um, Esther says to the king, well, can we please undo this terrible edict? And it's parallel to this, um, Esther helps Mordecai to get raised up to, uh, now he takes the place that Haman had. He gets the signet ring. He gets that sort of like vice president of Persian affairs kind of thing. And he's now managing things. Yeah, because there's a couple of moments of reversal here in early chapter 8. Like, Esther's given the house of Haman, so Esther now has all of his wealth. Uh, Mordecai has now been revealed as her kinsperson, has a signet ring, and then Esther gives him authority over Haman's house. So, like, he, Mordecai is the new Haman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, like, again, in a way that echoes, without the text actually saying, echoes a theme in a lot of Israel's storytelling about, um, not only reversal of the lowly being lifted up and also the proud being taken down a few pegs, but also like I think of stories like Joseph or Daniel who are raised to positions of authority under foreign rulers, under foreign empires, and how Mordecai, in a way similar to Joseph, in a way similar to Daniel, sort of like, uh, it's that sort of cream rises to the top. That here's a decent person who's finally raised into this position where he can be a good steward of what he's supposed to manage. Um, even though they don't get to be king themselves, they're okay with, I'm going to be the one who manages and tries to manage things well. But toward the top of the list of Mordecai's to-do list is how do I undo this terrible edict that even if my immediate life is safe because here I am in the capital and the king no longer wants to kill me and Haman's not around, what about in all the towns across the empire? And so now they have new edicts uh, written up that are going to spare the, not only spare the lives, but also give permission to uh, Jews in every city to assemble and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and annihilate any armed force of people in the province that might attack them, with their women and children, and to plunder their goods. <laughs> so, um, like, I guess basically it's, we're announcing the old edict is canceled, but in case some people still think, no, there's an edict, I'm allowed to kill the Jews, now this is like, you're allowed to defend yourselves. Canceling the old edict because they can't do that. That edict still has to stand. So this new edict is mostly like, hey, yeah, you can still kill the Jews, but also, by the way, the Jews can like defend themselves and right. kill you now. Right. So think about it before you decide to pick up your sword on this day. Which is interesting because it, it almost seems like the Jews were just going to sit back and let this happen yeah. to them. Right, right, right. You know, but, but this edict is for the exact same day that the original edict was set out for. Right. And saying, you know what, now the Jews not only can defend, you know, under castle law, like what we talked about today, but, you know, 
they have, there's a loss <laughs> that they can defend themselves, and if they kill you, well, you can't come back and sue them. Right, right, right. <laughs> and it, again, to me, like, this, this brings back this really interesting notion that, that runs through the book of Esther, that the empire thinks once we made an edict, we can't change it. We can only add new laws that you know qualify or or um, come on top of them. So instead of the king being able to say, "Hey, that was a dumb law. I should change it," um, that oh well, we we're, we said we're going to have to kill all the Jews on this day. All right, that has to stand because you can't change the king's law. But there's a new law that says if you try and kill the Jews, they can kill you back, or they can stop you by killing you, or and if they do, they can plunder your stuff. So you might want to think twice before you do it. So, a, so did this work? Like, did did it? Was there just peace and everybody just kind of mutually agreed? Hey, let's not attack each other on this day. Well, it it seems like um, there is some violence when you get around to it, as we get later in in the the uh, chapter. Um, this is as you move toward the the later part of uh, chapter eight, and uh, so the, this announcement is sent all through the kingdom on the the king's fastest horses. It almost sounds like a line of the Princess Bride, and the fastest horses and the king's fastest ships to all the four corners. Um, there's no mention of the Dread Pirate Roberts, though. Um, but we're, uh, the, the, the announcement is that uh, the Jews were to be ready on the, the day uh, to take revenge on their enemies. And interestingly, there are a couple of points where it mentions that some people are uh, killed, um, but that the, the Jewish people don't plunder the people that they uh, attack or kill. So it, it seems like the, the point of the story notes where there were these lynch mobs that were forming to, top, to try and kill the Jews, there were a number of places where the Jews would fight back and they killed people, but they didn't do this in ways that were like self-enriching. It wasn't, we're going to use this as an excuse to plunder people. Um, that's, that's not okay, even though the king's edict would have allowed it. No, we're not going to do this. Which again, kind of echoes, there are those stories back in the... Um, conquest stories back in the book of Joshua, there would be times where God's real clear, you're allowed to take this city, but you're not supposed to plunder their stuff, um, and there, there's whole issues over whether you do or don't live uh, under those commandments there. But so, uh, there are a number of places, like in the early parts of chapter 9, it says, so the Jews struck down all their enemies with a sword, slaughtering and destroying them, and they did as they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 people. They killed, and then it rattles off Parshandatha, Dalphon, Athava, Paratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Ariasa, Arede, Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, and Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not touch the plunder. So people have been killed, presumably, again, in this, when, when the angry mob comes to kill them, the Jews would fight back because they know they are permitted to, and uh, some have been killed. I find it interesting, before we get into all the, those killings, right at the end of chapter 8, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's celebration in all these towns as this news arrives because mm-hmm. you know, the Jews aren't going to be annihilated. Yeah. Um, but the, in that last verse, it says, and many people of other na- nationalities became Jews because the fears of the Jews had seized them. Yeah. So I'm wondering how many of these folks like have been, you know, um, under this authority that they've been like slaves or they've been, you know, harassed and, and, and beaten up by the Persians over the years because, you know, Persia mm-hmm. has conquered many people groups and now they're saying, well... If the Jews get to do this, I want to get on that and pay back for the Persians for what they've done to Right, people. right. There, there is a, at least the open question of the sincerity of these conversions, <laughs> right? Um, and maybe, like, important mental note, because uh, Christians have, have been guilty of plenty of this as well, the, the, the threat of violence uh, or else convert is not a great way of getting meaningful yeah. people to, to become a part of your faith. 
Um, so uh, eventually, there is, there is indeed this, this violence. People are killed who have uh, opposed uh, the, the Jewish people who were prepared to, to carry out Haman's orders. And um, uh, the very day that there was the, the, the edict was supposed to kill all the Jews, there was sort of this um, comeuppance for Haman's sons. That his ten sons are going to be uh, hanged as well on the very same gallows as well. Yes. Um, because like now that all that now that this day is drawing to a close, there's been all this violence. Xerxes asks Esther, "Now what would you like?" Mm-hmm. And like this is an odd moment because Esther isn't seeking this out. Xerxes is coming to her, mm-hmm. and this time Xerxes is not offering half of his kingdom, which mm-hmm. has been his kind of go-to yeah. of like. See, I'm going to be generous. Yeah. It, like he's not doing that this time. He's like, it's it. It rings a little bit more like, well, now what do you want? Yeah, yeah. Like, is this enough? Yeah, are we done yet? And yeah. um, Zer- and Esther comes back with two requests. So I guess it is not enough. She asks for another day in Susa, um, which I think is like a day of celebration. I think is what she's asking for. And then she asks for Haman's sons to be hanged on gallows. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we should be reading this as Esther being bloodthirsty, but the assurance of the elimination of the hatred of the Jews. Like, yeah. That it will be final. Like, there will be no more sons of Haman who will continue growing up and will seek revenge. Right, right, right. Now, again, th- this, this raises a really important question of, like, Anytime there is, I'm going to solve the threat of violence with more violence, it does, like, how do you stop that ever from cycling? But it does seem like the intention here for Esther is, we have to make sure this doesn't start up again, and we don't have Esther Part 2, Haman's Kid's Revenge, so that this is meant to put an end to it. But there's no even real guarantee that that solves the problem. But, it, yeah, it, it, it does seem her intent. The, the, um, the, the death toll across the Persian Empire comes in at the end uh, of this section, too, in chapter... 9 verses 16 and following, it says, The Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and gained relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This is the 13th day of the month of Adar, and the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. So again, there's a sense of, throughout the empire, the same scene has been playing out, where there'd be the mobs, all right, we're going to kill those Jews and take their stuff, and the Jewish people would fight back. And they, across the empire, killed 75,000 people who, again, were armed to kill them. Um, but there seems to be this sense of our lives have been spared, and now now the threat really has abated. It's not just we got rid of Haman, um, but like the, the, the threat and the legal edict that's out there to try and kill us, that, that is now off the, off the plate. Because the days for which it was going to be allowed have passed, and now there's no more. We're not allowed to kill the Jews anymore. <laughs> So now, this, this moves to the very, very tail end of the book of Esther, the, the back half of chapter 9, and chapter 10 is just a wee short three few verses. Um, the, 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 the last thing that's left to be done is how do we remember this story? It, it seems interesting to me um, that just like other important moments in Israel's life, mm-hmm. this story gets commemorated in a way that is supposed to be ritually reenacted in some way. And so just like Passover isn't just... Um, a day to pray, there's a story that goes with the, the Passover about how we were set free from slavery in Egypt and you recite the story of the plagues and all that. That's a part of the storytelling. To understand Passover rightly is to retell and reenact that story. And other moments of Israel's life 
have that same feel of there's a story that we tell at this point that now there's going to be, how do we remember this moment? Um, and in a sense, it's about our national identity, how we were saved, but there seems to be this like, again, like we've said all along, an undercurrent of God is the one who's delivered, even though we haven't said it out loud, but God is the one who's done the delivering. So this is where the, the Feast of Purim comes from, right? Yeah. Yeah, and there's also, so like you said, that there's certain things to help help the Jews remember this day. Yeah. So the Sabbath before Purim is a Sabbath of remembering. And so on that day, there are specific verses that are read, like Exodus 17, where Moses is instructed to write down what Joshua needs to remember, that you know God will wipe out the memory of Amalek, who is the ancestor of Haman. And then also Deuteronomy 25, which is instruction to Israel to remember what the Amalekites, I'm not sure I pronounced that right, um, what they did, and not forgetting that God will give them rest from their enemies so that the memory of that people will be wiped out. Mm -hmm. So again, it's those promises of like Haman, who is supposed to represent these people because he is descended from them, and you know, so those verses are read the Sunday or the Saturday, you know, the Sabbath before Purim. Mm -hmm. And the name for the, this festival, Purim, is the, the plural of poor, because that's how Hebrew works, um, but for poor meaning the, a lot, like the day they cast lots. So again, this goes back to that curious scene at the beginning when Haman says, basically, let's let the hand of fate or random chance dictate what's going to be the day that we plot to kill the Jews. And they, I mean, in our, in our language, roll the dice or flip a coin or something like that, but casting lots. And so it's that, the Hebrew word for casting lots, Purim, that becomes the name of this festival, about how this day that had been sort of become this sort of fateful day, well, it still turns out to be fateful, but in a different way. That instead of this being the day that they're all wiped out, this is the day they're vindicated. Um, again, with that sort of recurring theme of the, the very traps that the enemies had laid to destroy end up being the ways that they are caught up in their own machinations um, and, and uh, the, the people are saved. So the very, very last part of the, um, the, the book of Esther in Esther chapter 10, there's just sort of this closing off of um, that Mordecai, the, the story ends with Esther's fine, she's going to be okay, Mordecai is still in his position of vice president, um, and things are going to be okay, and he continues to look out for the good of his people and interceded for the welfare of all of his descendants. I mean, like, it, this is about as happy ending as you can get in the, the Hebrew Bible. Um, there, there's, this is as close to, and they lived happily ever after as, as you get, you know. Um, and, like, maybe in a way that really doesn't happen all that often in the story of Israel in the whole Old Testament. Because, like, even when you get to the end of the, the, the Torah, when you get to the end of the the um, books of Moses, which is sort of a convenient break point, there's still the, well, we got to enter the promised land, actually. So there's, it, like, that sets up a sequel. And Joshua sets up a sequel. And all the other moments, Joshua and Kings and all those, there's a lot of tragedy. There's not, and that doesn't have a happy ending because they go into exile. This is maybe one of the really rare moments where there's a, we can breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, at the end of the day, today, this feels like closure. Um, this this would have been a fine place to end the story in a way. Um, and interestingly, in the way uh, many Christian Bibles are arranged, this ends the section of the Old Testament where stories and histories are, and the next thing you get is Job and the, uh, the wisdom literature, the, the Psalms and things like that that are more poetic. Um, so this is, is sort of like a, this is as far as we carry this story, 
Um, and then if you uh, have access to a book, uh, a Bible that's got apocryphal books like the Maccabees, you pick up more history of what happens after that. Um, but this is sort of like a, an end point in the storytelling uh, for a while at least. So even though we've come to the end of the book itself, it feels to me like there are some nagging questions that are left uh, undealt with or that we promised ourselves and folks who are joining us for these conversations that we would address. So um, it, we, we want to invite you to join us for one more conversation next time. We're going to unpack some of the questions we've been looking at through this whole story, maybe in greater detail. How, how do we recognize where God is, where God isn't named? Um, how do we deal with the way violence shows up in the story? And even though there's a happy ending here, what do we do with all sorts of times since this story where there aren't the happy endings, and how do we see God in the midst of those things? So thanks for joining us this far, um, but uh, pick up with us next time on Crazy Faith Talk. See you. Bye.